Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, let's the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And Noel, we have a lot of TV to talk about today. But I am yes. optimistic that we can do it all in one segment, listeners. And I am optimistic about this because if we do it in two segments, I will talk too long. <laughs> and then I'll have to edit me talking too long. Uh, so we're going to keep the top of the show here pretty short uh, so that I don't go way too long monologuing in my Kate's Ketchup section. Um, there's some TV news this week. Uh, there, there's some other stuff, uh, other TV news, but the, the, the ones we wanted to, to mention were a couple renewals, one surprising, one not really surprising, um, or I guess not one of them completely expected and one not surprising. So the one that's completely expected is Outlander has been renewed for season seven. Um, I guess the only thing that might've been limiting there is that as the show of course goes on for longer and longer, it gets more expensive because you have to pay everybody more. Um, but that is such a huge hit for stars. I expect that to go as long as, as the actors are willing to do it. Um, so Outlander will be back uh, again. And then the other one is that Resident Alien has just been renewed for season two. There's only two more episodes left in the first season. It's a 10 episode first season. Um, so it, it seems to be well received. Um, other people don't have the problems with it that I do, I think. <laughs> um, I, I enjoy it. And don't get me wrong. I'm having fun. And it is so cool to have a show that has native characters just wo- woven into the, the structure of it. There's another show like that coming up soon. That's like, I think it's called like Rutherford Falls or something like that. Yes. Uh, from Michael Schur, it's going to be on uh, Peacock. Um, and it looks like sure. Completely distilled. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm on board for that, but you know, maybe not for everyone, but it, that's definitely one of the elements of resident alien that I really enjoy. Um, and it seems just don't seem to be, uh, aware of some of the other issues that like the show does not aware of the other things that I have a problem with. Um, so I don't anticipate they will change, you know what I mean? But we'll see. Maybe, sure. may, maybe in a season two, maybe I'll get more excited about season two, but um, I know there are plenty of sci-fi fans who are, you know, and, and Alan Tudyk fans who I'm sure are very excited that that has been renewed for a season two. Do you have thoughts on either of these renewals? I don't really have any thoughts about Outlander. I'm mostly wondering does she time travel into the future at any point? Oh, into our future? Yes. Oh, uh, does she? I don't think she travels beyond our future because, of course, she's from our past. So yes. I think that that doesn't happen. Does she travel into the present day? Our present? I, I don't think so. The there's because okay. there's a bunch of time travelers, right? In the cast at this okay. point. Um. So oh, okay. Well, there's just, there's not a bunch, but there's more. And there are definitely okay. people from her future and people from, um, from like who are from our present maybe, or from mm-hmm. our recent past, but her mm-hmm. re- like near future. Um, okay. and, and there are definitely people who are much, 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 much older as well. Okay. Um, My yeah. other question is, is Scott Bakula one of them? <laughs> and if not, 
why not? And can we fix yeah. that? Diana, let's get on that. We're, Diana, Gabaldon, and I are clearly on a first name basis there. Um, but yeah, no, there are so many, there's so many Outlander books that like, right. they can keep going for a long time. Um, and actually, I know that there are many Outlander fans who would very much like a spinoff, please, with John Gray, um, based on the, uh, the, the spinoff novellas that have been written for that character. Um, but yeah, which would be good. The, the, that would have to start David Barry, and he has done a good job so far, so he could definitely handle that, I think. But um, yeah, we'll see if what else happens with, with Outlander, if it does branch off. So far, it looks like they're not going to do it, but, you know, maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Okay. And Risen Alien's fine. Like, I'm interested in the second season. Um, I'm, I enjoy the show like you, like you do, um, even if I just kind of have, like, long problems that kind of just make me go um in it that just stretch into multiple places of the show and some of them that's part of the show and the arc Mm -hmm. um but it doesn't make it better or more interesting um but we can talk about it a little bit when you talk about in your roundup because i've seen seven episodes you've seen this week's episode so we can kind of compare notes yeah kind of see where we're at with it um the other bit of tv news we have for this week is of course a a much more somber thing which is the passing of uh, yafet koto um who died Mm -hmm. this week at age 81 he of course is best known to tv fans for homicide life on the street and he's an amazing amazing actor so terrific on that but he also has been in lots of other things uh and he's one of those like plenty of of movies and and uh you know i'm pretty sure he was a theater actor as well uh but showed up all over the place in like these guest spots on tv for just years and years and years um so another really striking presence another really talented actor who like would elevate whatever you gave him so yeah yeah it's wild to think about him in like homicide and anchoring basically a network tv show for like six years Mm -hmm. uh given his stature as an actor that he very slowly but also very quietly because he never really got as much fanfare as he deserved no um like it like all went to andre brower right right, exactly both in terms of homicide but also just in terms of he's such a good like supporting player i think is one of the problems even though he's he's just pure powerhouse of an actor um you watch him in basically anything and you just go why are you not like a household name um why are you why are you American character actor Yafet Koto? Um, <laughs> but without the prestige that comes with that title. And I, I think I know and I think it's racism, but you know. It's racism. It's very much racism. But no, he's great. It's a huge loss. Um, I like, I, I love Koto in Homicide. I love him in Alien naturally. So every time I watch Alien, which I get to do next month for Alien Day, I'm very excited. Um, I always look forward and I'm always really excited when I see him pop up with the credits for anything because he's great. So this, this made me quite sad. Um, but also he was 81. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the good, just really great stellar career. I encourage folks to check out his filmography. If you haven't beyond like alien or, um, the bad guy in love and let die, which is his big bond role. Um, but yeah, ch- if you can find Homicide, you should definitely watch Homicide anyway. Yeah. But see if they have it at it, your library for like, you know, yeah. you know, COVID friendly pickup to, to rent it. Yeah. Cause it's basically the only way to watch it. Um, I think I have season one still on DVD, but that's it. I think it's one and two. Anyway, doesn't matter. 
go and check out his filmography. It's really great. You will not be disappointed. Yeah. Um, this week at the end of the show, we're going to be talking about the second installment in Small Axe, which is Lover's Rock. It had been a while, so we thought it was time that we got back to that. Um, this is a like an hour and 10 minute long film, uh-huh. or uh-huh. We, we count it as a TV movie because it premiered on BBC. But uh-huh. people have lots of different opinions about that. It was, you know, we'll, we probably won't rehash that in, in the segment, but... We're going to talk about it here because we can, because it's our podcast and we feel like it and it's really good. So that's coming at the end of the show. But for now, let's take a break. Listen to Best Self by Lady Bree, which was featured this week on Queen Sugar. Uh, and we'll be right back after this. was Best Self by Lady Bree, featured this week, like I said, on Queen Sugar, um, in just one of those just really delightful scenes. Uh, More on that in a little bit. This week in in TV, we're going to kick things off with Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and his uh, Tucker Carlson segment. Then we'll talk Drag Race, both the penultimate UK episode, which I'm going to continue to arbitrarily keep spoiler-free. Beastenders is such a good name for an episode of television. It's very good. Oh my god, that's very good. Anyway, (laughs) sorry, continue. (laughs) That was too good to go unremarked upon. (laughs) And then we have the makeover episode of Drag Race uh, Season 13, Freaky Friday Queens. Then I'll do a a little roundup of some of the shows I've been uh, catching up with or or watching. So Alan V. Farrow had its last episode, episode 4, Queen Sugar, had May 19th, 2020. Then we have uh, season two finale of a, a Discovery of Witches and all of season two. I'll have a few thoughts about that. And then a couple thoughts on Resident Alien, End of the World as we know it. And um, I'm, I'm one week ahead of you. We'll kind of you know give our, our thoughts on that. Then it's to, to genre and superheroes with Black Lightning, The Book of Ruin, Chapter 2, The Flash, and they're kind of like last season finale with Mother. And then we'll round things out with the series finale... <laughs> So sad. Of DuckTales, The Last Adventure, Part 1, A Tale of Three Webbies. And then Part 2, The Lost Library of Isabella Finch. And last, Tales End, no exclamation point. Aww. Um, Aww. So that's coming at the end of the segment. But first up is Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Um, and there were some other segments, but I feel like the, the central one here is John Oliver going, yeah, Tucker Carlson's the white supremacist. Here's why. Um, thoughts on this segment. I really like this segment. Um, I think it's I think it's important when you see this kind of media criticism done by media, um, and I think 
really doing kind of a very broad survey of Carlson really kind of helps reinforce that he's a awful mm-hmm. B a white supremacist and C just a befuddled walnut of a human being. And I think that this segment overall is really good. I do think that there was a weird gap in that he just kind of Oliver being him skips over crossfire, which I feel like was a weird choice to make. Um, when he was talking about Carlson being on two failed shows when Crossfire was deeply significant for a number of years until Oliver's former boss, John Stewart, <laughs> rendered it inert uh, when he <laughs> showed up on the show and debated Carlson. Um, I think it was Carlson. Maybe the other conservative that was on Crossfire a lot. I can't quite remember. Um, either way. It was a weird thing because Crossfire is in no small part responsible for Tucker Carlson's ability to move in the television sphere as much as he was, as much as he did prior to getting his Fox show. So that felt like a weird oversight from Oliver and also a weird oversight from a general media history perspective of talking about the ways in which things have shifted in the ways that we talk politics are talked about particularly on cable news and how they're presented to us um down to the fact of even back when fox started it was hannity and combs as sort of a carryover from a crossfire crossfire-esque format in that you had a more liberal person and more conservative person discussing issues even if on hannity and combs combs was always not correct um But it seemed a little weird to skip over that part um, in both Carlson's journey, but also in the media environment that helped create him. So that was a weird oversight. But the overall thrust of the segment, I think, is really, really good. And a terrific primer that is not going to change anyone's mind that isn't already on board with Tucker Carlson being just a horrible, horrible human being who's just asking questions. I'm just asking questions, Kate. Um, But Sure. Sure. But I I do think that it was just a weird sidestep to avoid talking about Crossfire at all. Um, but again, really good segment. Um, and again, really good when media critiques media in this vein. I'm sure that Tucker Carlson had something to say about it, maybe on Monday. I don't know. I didn't see any clips going around, so maybe they just didn't know. But I can't imagine that they didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Um because you'd think the, the best thing to do is just not respond to it. But Absolutely. But that is not their MO. And this is, is the not. kind of thing they love. Yes. Uh, so, you know, they can cry cancel culture and be offended right. and such. So, like, I yeah, I haven't seen any reaction. But I, I just... Uh, that just tells me that my bubble is working great. <laughs> like the algorithms are on my side on this one. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if more of that, uh, speaking of bubbles, more of that bubbles up. Um, yeah, the rest of the episode I thought was solid, but um, I appreciate just the the no holds barred, no, not like pulling any punches, not like racially insensitive, no, racist. That's yes. what this is. Um, I think that was a very, you know, important thing to be said out loud. We need to get more comfortable just calling things racist when they are racist, uh, as opposed to racially charged, as opposed to 
problematic, which is, you know, a word that I have been just as uh, guilty of overusing to sidestep difficult conversations as anyone else. I'm trying to get better about it. Um, so, yeah, this is maybe a slam dunk, easy target of a, you know, conversation to have like that, but still one that I appreciated. But Kate, is it racist to ask questions? What is the world coming to if it's just some sort of dog <laughs> yeah, whistle no, to ask questions in no, America? No, no, this is we're gonna f- right off from this conversation. Let's move on to <laughs> uh, Drag Race and Drag Race UK had Beast Enders. Um, now this was their acting challenge for the top four, and they did, a, of course, an East Enders riff. Now, not having seen any East Enders. I, it didn't mean much to me, but I could tell just from watching it, like how iconic of moments that they were referencing based on everyone else's reactions and based on the reactions from people online on Twitter, that kind of a thing. So like this one really didn't translate uh, across the pond. I think all of that well, but it doesn't need to, cause it's not for me. It's not for us. It's for the UK audience. And I, it was very charming to me. Uh, delightful people reacting to this very drag race take on a bunch of really classic um, EastEnders and, and, you know, British soap opera beats and um, iconic moments like that. So it was, it was neat. They did, they all did a good job too. Um, The, uh, the lip sync, I can see why they did the answer that they did, why they, they did the, why Rue made the choice that, that he and the producers made about who should get eliminated. Um, this is very much a two queen race. By the time y'all listen to this, you probably already know who won. Um, but taking, is there a way I can spoil free way? No, there isn't a spoiler free way. So I think the lip sync result um, is the best lip sync result to try to pretend that there are more than two queens contending for the title. Um, yeah. So we'll see what happens in the finale. But I've really enjoyed this season of Draggers UK. It's been a, a very talented, bit and but a very um, engaging batch of queens, a cast, an ensemble of queens, I should say. And um, it's been, it's very interesting on a meta level to analyze it from like, what happens when you have seven months off and you come back? Because one of the queens had a clear trajectory steamrolling straight to the finale and the crown before the seven month hiatus. And, and, and that queen is still in the top two, but looks less likely to win. And another queen was struggling, was rejuvenated by the seven month break and came back and has been on a tear since. And so it's like, you know, (laughs) it seems like the hiatus was good for the mental health of one of them and really bad for the mental health of another. And it's like, it kind of threw them off their game versus let them find their footing and their confidence. So that on that metatextual level, it's really interesting to sort of think about. Um, and it's the kind of thing that will hopefully never be replicated on the show. So um, yeah, it's neat, but the Queens have all done a really terrific job. And the, 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 the runway category was Panto queen or Panto Dame. So uh, it was like, you know, a, a love letter to, to the, the pantomime shows in the UK, which is delightful as well. So I love having such a broad camp category for the top four. Cause usually it's like best drag or like something just much more glamorous as opposed to really celebrating this very different style of drag. So I, I, I liked it a lot um, for 
the U.S. edition, we had season 13, episode 10, which was our makeover, uh, Freaky Friday Queens. What did you think of the makeovers? And did you agree with, you know, how things shook out? So I was kind of like, eh, about the makeover um, as a concept. Like, there was no other way around this to do the makeover episode. My general feeling was just don't do one then. But you can't not do one. It, doing a Not doing a makeover episode on Drag Race is sort of like, we're not going to do Snatch Game. We're not going to do a Rusical, et cetera, et cetera. There's too many, like, important beats now in the formula that's skipping yeah. over just because there's a pandemic. Um, the show has to go on. <laughs> but I do think that this episode managed to still find some quality in the fact that they had to get into each other's drags and think about what that looks like and how that feels. And I think that was an interesting conversation for everyone to have. And I thought that it was really good. So I feel like my, my like, oh, this is a bad idea. was a little unwarranted in the episode itself once it started going. Even if sometimes it didn't make as for compelling television as, <laughs> look at those people that can't walk in high heels, um, which is a solid, just <laughs> constant, reliable performer on Drag Race that we don't get this year because everyone knows how to walk in heels. However, we do get plenty of people trying to get attitude and body style and thinking about their bodies in relation to what it means to transform into this other queen. So we still get that, but we get it in a much more nuanced and thoughtful way than I think even I was anticipating. So I ended up really enjoying this episode, even if I don't think it's quite the makeover barn burner that I tend to enjoy when they do the makeover episode. I still liked it as a conceptual episode, and I think it's probably something that they should consider going back to doing every now and then anyway, um, especially depending on the cast. Or like for All-Stars? So yeah, I think doing it with All-Stars is a really great idea. Um, and I think it could really showcase the ways in which these queens really are All-Stars, but also in the ways in which these queens talk about their drag. So I think it, it's really good from that perspective as well. Um, I do, I did struggle with Utica here. Um, I get Utica's concern, but also it became about Utica as a, as opposed to about a thing about appropriation, um, which there's, there's waters to navigate there, but it very much became about Utica and not about the actual concern Utica had, which is not the best place to be. Um, so I think that, yeah, before we get into like the runway, I guess, how did you feel about the overall concept? Yeah, I agree. I think it uh, it worked out much better than they even could have intended. I mean, maybe I'm not giving the producers enough credit there, but um, the watch, especially I thought it was hilarious the, watching Rosé and Tina with the walk where Tina's like, you're roséing it. Stop. Why does everything need to have a, mm -hmm. like a twirl and a flip? And a, right? <laughs> like Rosé can't not Rosé, you know? Um, and yeah. so watching, like, because normally this, this really challenged them in a way that the makeovers normally don't. Because normally they're just like the queen bee and the whoever they're tasked with has to just do what they do. And they aren't pushed outside of their comfort zones. They just have to, they have to try to teach their drag aesthetic to a new, to a newbie. But they are going with someone who has usually absolutely no experience in drag, therefore nothing to push back on them with. Whereas here they're dealing with other people who have years of experience. Even the, the least uh, experienced drag queens here have multiple years experience in drag. And so 
having to crystallize what you do for a complete newbie is very different than for someone like your style, explaining that to someone who actually has their own and has developed it and has studied it, right? Can you explain your composition to a, to a musician versus to a lay person use a totally different vernacular and they can ask you, like the person who actually has training in this can ask you questions that you maybe you haven't thought about and really fully fleshed out in your mind in a way that you are not going to be challenged or pushed back on by someone who doesn't know anything about it. So watching them have to, you know, really translate a physicality and, you know, to a completely different person. And in some, like with Got Mick and Candy, having to change their drag to some, like, just so new, like take apart in so new outfits um, in the same amount of time. It's, it's, it's a lot. Um, And I agree with the Utica stuff. Uh, I do think it's, you know, I saw some people talking about this on Twitter and I thought it was an, an excellent point just because Simone says, that just because one person or one person of color tells you that something you do isn't racist doesn't mean they mean they speak for everyone. It's not a monolith, right? So I understand, um, like, I understand Utica being hesitant. I also understand, um, like, the conversation about intent versus impact, which is not something the show was interested in getting into. But um, no. I liked watching, you know, and they they didn't get into they didn't get into the the things that could have been a problem, right? Because Utica matched Simone's walk, but she didn't, if you actually look, Simone does a lot, has a lot more physical tics than Utica Mm -hmm. presented because Utica didn't present, didn't try to mimic what Simone does. She tried to mimic the emotion and the feel of what Simone does. And that's completely different than uh, like, versus like Tina uh, and Rosé who did, like exaggerated caricatures of each other's physical quirks as they walk. If Utica had done that with Simone, she would have been in trouble. <laughs> it would not have been good. So like, I think there was a much more interesting and nuanced conversation to have there that this episode was not interested in having and didn't necessarily yep. have the space to really do. Um, but I thought I was really, I thought that Utica and Simone did great. They were the definite standouts. Uh, it was, Utica learned a lot, I think, from doing this just around the notes that she's been getting over and over again from the judges of not everything needs to be goofy. Like, yes, some things yes. can't, should be goofy, but not everything needs to be goofy. Look at what Simone did with your very goofy premise. She did that, but she did it in a way that was elegant and more fashion, which, you know, there, there's a place for the camp, there's a place for the comedy, but there's also a place for the fashion. And the only runways where Utica has really embraced that has been her sleeping bag look and then this one. Yes. And she was, it was just cool to watch her take on that poise that she associates so much with Simone and that she clearly does not associate with herself, but maybe right. she should, you know? Yeah. That was really neat. And the, the, I mean, the people we haven't mentioned yet is Denali and Olivia. And that's because this really highlighted for me, at least that the, they are the two that have the least command over what their drag and their aesthetic is outside of just a couple keywords and buzz phrases. And I think Olivia was definitely like this really showed her as an inexperienced queen compared to everybody else up there. Um, not that she's not incredibly talented and not that she's not 
you know, very much deserving of her place there and her position amongst the other queens. But if the only thing you can think of for what makes your drag specific and what makes you stand out from everyone else is pageant gown and elegance, that's not that's not enough. That's not nearly enough. Not even a good pageant gown either. Like it's sparkly, but it's not even a good gown. I, I mean, I liked it more than you did, but yeah, like right. And and the judge is being like, "This isn't, but this isn't your brand." And she's like, "Yeah, it is. Like, it's not. It's very. It shouldn't it's very be." Much yeah. This other thing that you've been doing is way better. Pivot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Denali's was like the 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 mug could have been better, but it was very clearly Denali. That's what the paint was, and the outfit was not very good. No. But again, it was Denali. Um, speaking of rough mugs, the the makeup on Rose, whew, that was rough. And Tina has never looked better, though. Is the thing like it's so weird watching both of them. Yeah. And I don't like the outfit for Tina, the rosé outfit for Tina. I don't particularly like. But Tina's face has never looked better yeah. um, than it did with this switcheroo. Um, so it looked really, really great. But yeah, I was just like, this is this is weird and it's not great. And I agree with you, everything that you were saying regarding Denali and Olivia. So I'm not going to harp on it. Um, and Mick and Candy, I think, did exactly as well as they were going to do given their circumstances. But I also think that they did also a very solid job of embodying one another's attitudes, um, which I think that the only other pair that did that as well were Utica and Simone. Um, And I think that is why both of them, why got, why Mick and Candy were both safe, but why Utica and Simone won. Um, down to for me especially one of the things I liked about the makeup for Utica that Simone did on Utica is that some Utica's face almost looks like a white face almost yeah um which I thought was also really smart from like a conceptualization perspective um and I thought that was just really really interesting way of layering the conversation that they were having in a different direction. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, but I also thought Utica was just clearly having a ball mm-hmm. being weird. And just, I can just imagine for both of them to your earlier point about how this is probably going to open up both of their drags in interesting ways or the ways that they think about their drag. Um, and hopefully really productive ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I granted I'm biased. I'm a teacher, but uh, nothing forces you to become an expert at something like teaching it to someone else and having to really crystallize down exactly what you mean and give give it this you know in a cohesive but concise way um nothing forces you to clarify your thought process like that so i absolutely agree i would love to see this pop back up in future seasons in 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 various ways um and yeah i I enjoyed it so i I was also pleasantly surprised i wasn't sure exactly how it was gonna go but i think they actually ended up with a lot of really great stuff from it um i agreed with who was in the top i agreed with who was in the bottom i agreed with the order of the other two teams as well um and i think the wrong person went home (laughs) yes i agree with you um i know that it boils down to like the lip sync in some cases but i don't think it should have boiled down to the lip sync here well, but I also think um, that Denali won the lip sync. <laughs> so Yeah, my recollection of it is that Denali also won the lip sync, but it, it has been a little while since I've watched it, I will acknowledge. Um, it wasn't like the blowout that Denali's last lip sync was, but yes. 
Yeah. But, no, I yeah. agree. Um, and I think it just boils down to the fact that Denali got jammed real hard and just... Yeah. Denali wasn't going to win. Yeah. Wasn't going to win. And I also don't think Olivia's going to win. I know that I kind of pegged Olivia as a front runner, but I think Olivia's fallen too far behind at this point uh, between Simone and Mick in particular. Um, that... I don't think they have much of a chance, but who knows? Anything can happen on the show at this point, but you probably already know. <laughs> well, it just, this season especially, um, well, I mean, th- this happened plenty of times in uh, previous seasons as well. And Jan is a good example. There are certain queens that you can just tell, oh, they're not going to win. They're not making it to the, the final. And it doesn't really matter how they do at a certain point. Like, Rue was not going to save Denali over Olivia unless Olivia pulled a Valentina. I'd like to keep it on, right? Like, unless there yeah. was no way <laughs> they could, uh, like, keep face and also keep Olivia. Um, so, yeah, it, that can get frustrating as a viewer. And uh, there's, um, I have some thoughts about that with the next episode. The next episode is the branding episode. Um, and I don't right. think the performances in the branding episode um, are reflected in all of the judging. I think there's a certain, I mean, yeah, there's just, there's a certain, you know, subset of the Queens that Rue has already made, you know, made his mind up about and who will not be making it to the final four. So it's just a matter of like kind of kicking them off and some order so that we, and winnowing down between the last final few who are vying for the finale, like Mick or Simone would have to royally mess up to not be in the top four. Um, Like they would have to like punch somebody and get disqualified by the rules, you know, like they would have to do a lot um, to not make the final four at this point. And and, they're amazing. So that's not a bad thing, but um, yeah, I, I said in my review, I don't think that this was a bad time for Denali to go because then you get the, I was robbed at it. Which is great, yeah. um, but I don't think that Denali's work merited the elimination. So we'll see how other people feel about it, and maybe I'm biased because she's a Chicago queen. But <laughs> maybe we didn't we didn't factor that in. At least I was honest about my Atlanta queens. Yeah, yeah. Um, next up uh, on the weekend TV, I'm just going to quickly go through a few other shows that I've been catching up with. So Alan V. Farrow is a four part uh, or Alan versus Farrow is a four part uh, documentary series about the allegations of sexual assault um, on against Woody Allen brought by Dylan Farrow. And I mean, as, as a child, so by Mia Farrow, um, Dylan's mom. And, uh, and I haven't been talking about it because I wanted to kind of, watch all of it and kind of see how it laid and how it you know went together before I had too many thoughts on it um and I will lead with I absolutely believe Dylan and I think that you know that is this is not a air quotes unbiased documentary series the the people who are doing it looked and investigated the information made an assessment on what they think happened and that informs this um, and I actually really appreciate that. I appreciate that they don't try to pretend that they don't have an opinion or that it is not a knowable thing. They also present um, Woody Allen's point of view. They they give that, like, they Woody Allen says this, and they use video clips of him in interviews saying what he says happened, and they use uh, uh, audio clips from his autobiography that he has um, 
recorded himself, right? So, like, they they do, like, you know, like, so-and-so declined interviews to, like, declined invitations to be interviewed, or, like, they, they include all that stuff that you would expect in a documentary series. But they also include interviews with a bunch of people that I had never seen interviews with who are like, yeah, this happened. Yeah, this happened. Uh, I walked in and Woody Allen had his lap, his head in his daughter's lap, face down. It was very strange. It was like I was walking in on something, but she was seven. So you like, like, <laughs> I walked up and Woody Allen had Dylan sucking his thumb. Like he was ha- making her suck his thumb. Like that stuff like that, which I didn't know about. And where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well. There are plenty of other witnesses to this part of it that is super f***ed up um, without the other stuff, you know. So, like, there... Anyways, I, I, I thought that it was... That's that's not getting into the documentary. That's getting into the allegations themselves. So, I, to focus on the documentary, I thought it was pretty well-paced. I mean, I think there's some stuff you probably could have cut. But I, I liked that they saved the bulk of the interviews with Dylan for the last episode um she's in i think all of the episodes but they the the last episode is really much more her um getting a chance to share what she's comfortable sharing about her experiences um it's a chronological you know approach so that that really i think works um the there are some changes in approach in the third episode that were kind of jarring where they started using voiceover from the investigative team for the for the documentary um but i thought and and it is not as curious or as interested as i may might have been about some of pharaoh's amia pharaoh's background as well um but but i i think that you know, i like that they hold off they don't really do much with ronan until episode four either they're very aware that he is such a high profile figure um so they include him when it's appropriate basically when he's an adult and starts to figure into the story um they don't before then uh they they interview the the kids who the the adults who were older kids at the time because ronan is younger than dylan um, and so, and, and so I, I appreciated some of how it was laid out. If you don't have an opinion or are, are curious about this, I would say that it is, I think it is well-made. Um, it can be very challenging to watch and disturbing because as most documentaries about sexual uh, abuse and trauma are, um, and, uh, so, you know, be warned. But if you, if you're someone who has been very confident to say, well, I can separate the art from the artist. Um, I have no problem with this or I don't, I just, I don't believe Dylan or I don't know what I think, or I haven't looked into it. I think you should watch it and then you can decide what you think from there, but make that an informed decision as opposed to one that maybe is convenient or comfortable to just not look. So I very much appreciated that they do give this opportunity for Dylan and other people in their circle and their family to talk about their experiences um, from over like the decade of the Pharaoh and Alan relationship, not just the very end um, of it. So it was, it was interesting. I'm glad I watched it, but I'm also glad that I waited to share any thoughts until I had seen all four. You might want, you probably wouldn't want to watch all four back to back to back. It's 
yeah. it's intense stuff. But I think that having, I think it is very much of a piece. And I'm glad that it does not have the same problem as Save the Vow, where you're like, really? Oh, there's a season two. No. <laughs> no. So this is, the story is done at episode four, and I think that's appropriate. Um, next is Queen Sugar, May 19th, 2020. May 19th, 2020. And Noel. This episode is so beautiful. This whole episode is the wedding. It's just the wedding. Oh, that makes sense that it's that day. Oh, that's so exciting. I cannot wait yeah. to watch it. I tried. I tried so yeah. hard, listeners, to get to it. I, I caught up on Black Lightning and then watched last week's Queen Sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Did not have time. But that's yeah. very exciting. I'm very excited. So so I, just, I was like, what, how much are you going to say? I'm not going to say very much because I know you're going you're yeah. gonna to watch it and I want you to be able to experience it. But like, it's just like this beautiful day and George Floyd's murder is right on the horizon. Um, and it's about to get really, really painful as if it wasn't already with what's happening with Hollywood and his mom, but it's about to take everything to another level of, of trauma and pain. And so I really appreciate them carving out a full episode, celebrating love and joy and triumph and the long journey that Ra and Darla have had with each other and to each other. And it's delightful. So it's just really lovely. And then I like that they really make sure to incorporate stuff with uh, Charlie and with Micah and with, with different people as well. There's an appropriate level of snark when they uh, tell everyone they're getting married and please wear this color. They're like, <laughs> and Vi has thoughts about that, <laughs> springing a wedding on people and then having a dress code. <laughs> uh, it's delightful. So I, I look forward to your thoughts. Do you have any thoughts on last week's episode? Uh, I really liked it. Um, I, I, I'm worried about Hollywood's mom. Mm-hmm. And um, makes makes me anxious. That, well, I mean, I'm not worried they took her off the ventilator. So um, it's not great. But I'm glad Prosper left his house. Is it, is, Prosper, isn't that so nice? I was like, how did I not think of that? That is delightful. Yay, them quarantining together, at least for a little bit. Yeah, no. And Prosper should be staying with them anyway. Yeah. Um, let's be real. But yeah. let's be very real. He should be staying with them anyway. Or at least going over more often, but that was good. Um, everything with Nova and Calvin and his daughter was solid, but I'm also waiting for that shoe to drop real hard, real fast <laughs> once things kick into gear in another couple of weeks uh-huh. um, with Floyd and everything else um, that's going to kick in. So I'm just like, this is going to get weird real fast. Um, and I'm not here for the Micah and Micah and Charlie stuff right now, but also, buddy, don't go to a party. Just don't do it. Yeah, don't go to a party. But he's dumb enough to do that, though. He is. I'm sad. He is. I remember when Micah wasn't, like, yeah, stupid, and yeah. now he's. I'm going to go to this party. You can't tell me what to do. And she's like, No, she can. She because because it's her house. Being awful, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a pandemic. <laughs> so no. Yeah. So no. Um, there's other stuff baked into that, that whole assumption about, um, whether or not this new girl is white, et cetera, et cetera. That is a more interesting avenue for them to explore, but the whole, you're not the boss of me anymore. I'm my own man. And it's just like, oh, sweetie, you are. (laughs) So make better choices. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I look forward to your thoughts. Bless his heart. Indeed. Indeed. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, next up is A Discovery of Witches, uh, which I caught up with. And I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, this did indeed work much better for me as a binge than sp- uh, spaced out week okay. to week. So I had a lot more fun with it watching it in that way. Um, I think some of it worked and some of it didn't. Uh, it certainly was not as exciting or fun as I wanted you know, hijinks in the past to be. Um, And it very much had the energy of like, this is a book that has been adapted. And if you like the book, you're probably either going, yay, they did the book or you're going, the book's better. Um, So it, it, like it had, it had that feeling of of how they are progressing through the narrative and everything. Um, There are some lingering things for, the next season that are interesting. They've established um, threads that I anticipate coming to fruition pretty soon uh, or pretty early in season three, but maybe it'll be a season three big reveal. So with some of the twists that they're setting up that we're not supposed to have figured out yet. <laughs> but all in all, I, I was surprised. I did actually end up having quite a bit of fun with a discovery, which is season two, but only when I could just like, consume it as popcorn and as opposed to like spacing it out and really thinking about it. Um, Resident Alien had the end of the world as we know it. And this, I mean, you, you saw the end of the last episode. So they're stuck in a crevasse. They're stuck in a crevasse. And uh, guess what happens when an alien is injured? Uh, You know, when Harry's injured, he can't keep up his, psychic mind camouflage or whatever it is yeah it's camouflage as much so that that's gonna push certain things to a head and i think i think it overall it works pretty well it's a good um installment of that kind of an episode um yeah i look forward to your thoughts on it do you have any thoughts on the previous one uh i mean i'm just i'm just glad that that good deputy is finally not taking it anymore like she, yeah she made a really good murder board Murder board. Murder board. Murder board. <laughs> and I'm just glad she's not taking it anymore because she shouldn't. It's too long. It's been too long for her to not be taking it anymore. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a little worried about the crevasse episode just because I find their glacial green screen really, really funny. Because um, it's <laughs> so bad. Um, but it, it only looks bad when they're having to do shot reverse shot. It doesn't look bad when it's just Alan Tudyk trudging around. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm curious to see how this plays out, but, um, yeah, no, it's been fine. I, I enjoyed for the Tudyk of it all. Um, but I, I'm also just like, wait, are we going to figure out who killed the doctor? I mean, we all know who killed the doctor, but yeah. Are we going to, like, figure that out? And I know it's the least important thing going on in the show, but I also feel like the show does not care, but they keep mentioning it every now and then. I'm just like, show, we know you don't care. You know we know you don't care. Just stop pretending you care and just resolve it now and then just do the show you want to do and find a weird reason to justify this guy staying, this alien staying in this weird town. But also more more Linda Hamilton, please. (laughs) (laughs) See, I don't, I'm not interested in Linda Hamilton. I'm not either, but I love her so much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I have another thought on that, but I'll wait till you see. Oh, okay. So fair. fair. Not, not on Hamilton specifically, but on some other elements of that storyline. So 
More on that next time. Uh, next up is Black Lightning, The Book of Ruin, Chapter 2. And what do you think of New Gen? I like New Gen. I like the dynamics that they established mm-hmm. with New Gen. Um, I mean, I, I correction, I don't like Jefferson's whole deal. It's bad and I don't like yeah. it. Um, Chris Williams is selling the hell out of it, but it's stupid and I don't care for it. Um, but every, like, that whole scene with Jennifer and Anissa on the couch just hanging out, watching TV and talking to one another just golden magic like it's kind of the thing that i love about black lightning so i was just like oh this is so good i love all of this also also jenner new jennifer's impression of lynn is just so perfect like i could not get over (laughs) it how perfect it was kate it was just the perfect impression of that actor um so i was just really pleased by it so i really liked it i i enjoyed it um, I don't understand, however, why you would do a big outdoor political speech at night. So that you can get killed. I, I just, I understand, like, it all has to do with, like, shooting availability and locations and all that sort of stuff. It makes no narrative sense. <laughs> Especially when you consider that Tobias gets to have a daytime press conference. <laughs> <laughs> why yeah. did you go to this um encampment in the middle of the night for what reason as part of a gun buyback program also why would you do it at the end of the day yeah um so none of that made any sense to me and it was actually kind of distracting got in the way of how i was thinking about the episode but overall i really like new jennifer and I like the way that they're folding her in and that there just wasn't a suit ready because she's so much taller. <laughs> um, so I'm really enjoying that aspect of the show and I like how their show is handling this. I don't super love the show's weird drift into super sci-fi flash territory um, with how they decided to do this in the previous episode because it's not the show. Um, but we needed a way to do it and this makes as much sense as anything they do on The Flash. More on that in just a second. Um, but how are you feeling about New Jennifer and the show kind of gearing up to Tobias running for mayor? And also, we did not discuss one other really important thing, which is Lala frozen in carbonite slash concrete. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so delightful. I kept waiting for the, like, the, I always wanted to do that. And, like, well, maybe it'll come later. Um but yeah, I I don't know how you don't make a Star Wars joke about that. Yes. So maybe it's coming. Um, delightful. And um, also a great way to uh, raise the stakes with your other baddie. Mm-hmm. To have your other baddie be smart enough to think of that. Yes. Or at least try it, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm really liking New Jennifer as well. The thing I did not anticipate that I should have, which I thought was great, was taking advantage of this opportunity to give Jen and Grace... Stuff to bond with, yes. bond over, yeah, and talk about. I was like, oh, thank goodness you're you're here to do more than just be the supportive girlfriend or now wife, uh, or secret secret wife, right? Secret wife, uh, and yeah. So so that was really lovely, and I like I liked um, Jen being like, well, you can control what you look like. It's like, well, now I can. It's I turn into a leopard. <laughs> Come on, I was just like a cat. With no control over what I look like for, like, not that long ago, you know? Like, I, I appreciate that they they 
took advantage, they looked at their, their, all their characters, they looked at, like, all their cards in their deck, and, like, what can we do, mm-hmm. and let's take this, again, let's, let's use this to our advantage, rather than just being spun back on our heels by it, mm-hmm. um, by the recasting, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, I, I actually really liked a lot of this episode, I did not like the decision to dramatize uh, the death of Brianna Taylor, um, and I saw a very mixed reaction to that online. I'm curious if you have thoughts on this or or not. I I mean, frankly, I don't think many people care or should care what I think about this. Yeah. Um, I saw plenty of people who were really moved by it and found it really powerful and a really great statement about uh, Taylor's death and also no-knock warrants and policing. Um, and then other people who were really offended by it and who you know, like, oh, well, we just need superheroes and that'll solve everything, you know, sort of a thing, or using that as a prop to elevate their characters, you know. So, like, I can see both of those arguments very much. For me, it was, it was like, wait, are they straight up doing Brianna Taylor? What is happening? Like, it was really jarring. Yes. I think a trigger warning at the beginning would not have gone awry. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was... I was, I was not, I, I think I can see, I think I can see what I think they were trying to do. Um, and maybe I'm giving them too much benefit of the doubt. I, my, uh, my read of it is that it is coming from a positive and uh, celebratory of Taylor and her life and uh, an attempt to raise awareness and, and, and really champion Black Lives Matter and specifically Taylor and these other uh, changes that need to happen in American policing. Um, that's where I think they were coming from. For me, I'm not sure that it worked, you know, but again, it, it, I'm not the, I don't know that I'm the intended audience or that it really matters what I think about it. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about it. Um, or were conflicted at all. I was just like, well, this is one of those things where I was watching this going like, oh, I'm so glad. I, I mean, I should never be the person writing about Black Lightning to start, start with. Right. But like, you know, especially if they didn't have a screener, I can't imagine getting to that and be like, oh, now I have to write about, oh, God. Yeah, this is this um, is at least five to 600 words about this um, yeah. in your review um, before you discuss yeah. anything else. Um so I think we do have a degree of responsibility to talk about and provide a reaction. And for me, I agree with you that I do think that this was coming from a place of really wanting to dramatize it and really calls call awareness to it. And I, I get that as an impulse. Um, I do think that it's not super successful um, because while I think it's very, it can read as very moving, but for me, I side too hard on the, if only we had superheroes kind of idea, um, to write this particular wrong, as opposed to really grounding it in the community and in combating a systemic issue, um, as opposed to, well, if only we had black lightning type of deal, um, it would all be okay. Um, and we don't, and we shouldn't, and because it would be weird to have superpowers, <laughs> but also just one person can only do so much, and also there's other ideas about vigilantism, et cetera, et cetera, and I don't want to get off track. 
But I also think that as a way of reintroducing Black Lightning into the Freeland community, which is an arc for me that hasn't fully made sense. I get where it's grounded for Jefferson, but it also just, for me, it was much more potent when they had the sequence at the bar an episode or two ago that really pushed back against Jeff's grief as a way to reintroduce Black Lightning into Freeland. Um, without necessarily hitting this kind of button and maybe doing a really divisive sequence. Um, that is done really well, I think, on like a television level, but as a message level, I think it gets kind of muddled because of the presence of a superhero. Um, so, yeah, my general feeling is, is that it works for what I think that they want to achieve with it in terms of making it making people aware that black lightning is back and that he's doing exactly what the little stinger at the beginning of each episode says that this is for the streets black lightning's back um but because you're grounding it in an actual event um it it reads really weird and not necessarily in i think the most productive way so that's how i feel about it. even if i do really like how they score the fight with her, with him, and with uh, Lightning, um, and how that fight is generally sort of depicted, and that they're both in sync, so it provides also a degree of character resolution for the two of them in this episode, but that all overshadows the actual event that they're referencing, which is also not a great look, um, I think. So it's, it's a really muddled piece that I think, like you said, comes from a really good place. But the execution of it leads it open to too much critique. And I think all of that critique is justified. Yeah. So listeners, if you have thoughts on this that you'd like to share, or if you have, I mean, I'm sure there have been some interesting um, explorations of this decision and some like write-ups about it. Hopefully. Um, so if you, if, if there are any that you found particularly um, compelling that you'd like to share, please send them our way. And I, I know I will be looking out for that as well. Um, uh, onto a very different kind of episode over at the flash uh they had mother and they wrapped up the all the the mirror monarch um with the power of love and like normally that's i eat that kind of stuff up right that is like wheelhouse kate that's like steven universe fan like yeah it's wheelhouse like early flash yeah oh it's very very early flash but like it doesn't like none of it makes sense, and they it doesn't make any sense. They like they don't do enough. Ex- they both do not enough explanation and too much explanation. Yes, and the same like, and they do that in a more entertaining way with Wells when Wells has that board up that just has like math problems, but which is with Wells and all like written in like in a way that is obviously complete nonsense, and actually has me more interested in who Wells this Harrison Wells is. Because, like, yes. in my head, he's just messing with them. Because, obviously, that's not math. And he's just, that just tells me a little bit about his personality. He's the kind mm-hmm. of, you know, the kind of guy to just be like, don't worry about it. And when they insist on understanding, he's like, okay, well, it's I take it to the power of Wells. And then you divide by the coefficient of Wells. And then, like, you know, just, just seeing how long he can stretch it out. And they'll keep nodding, you know? Like, that's entertaining to me. But um, the, all the stuff with Iris, I like the idea that 
Iris was the key and that like this the, the residual speed force and like I think I think there's stuff that they play with but like oh man th- there's so many other like the the hand wave away of um the speed thinking Barry's decision and especially by Cisco and like all of that like it all works out really great with no consequences for Barry despite him doing yes. a terrible thing um yes. again again Barry Allen just keeps doing terrible things and everyone's okay with it well, and, and he goes, but I feel really guilty. And they go, you don't have to feel guilty. Don't feel guilty because we don't want to have to spend our show doing that. Um, so instead of, so, so we're just going to like not have anyone have any resentment towards you because it's tidy. You dust off yeah. our hands. But like it's in a way that just makes it more frustrating rather than less. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I guess now we can start our next season. Um I, yeah, I wanted so much more. I could wait for the Joe and, and, and Seal thing to, to mean something else. It was so bad. It was so bad. Yeah. Remember yeah. when Jesse L. Martin had things to do on this show? I know that, like, there are v- various reasons why he's doing less. Uh-huh. However, remember when he had things to do on this show? You'd think he would, like, be like, oh, my daughter is here. I should probably go see her, you know? Yes. Like, oh God, yeah, there's there's some major structural issues here. Um, I'm glad that this part is over. Let's bring on the new season. Any final thought? Oh, oh, and also, I delighted in the shade towards uh, the elongated man. Um, specifically the actor, not more than the character. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that part of it and the way that they wrote them out? I think that the way that they wrote off Dibney and Sue, which is a shame because Sue's great and I was really Mm -hmm. actually hoping Sue was going to stick around. Um, I understand why. She probably would have if they had kept Dibney, um, but they shouldn't have. Um, But that gets into other issues regarding like Daniel Panabaker and just everything else. Anyway, um, yes, no, that was really funny, including his Daft Punk helmet. Um, (laughs) R.I.P. Daft Punk. And I think that it was just, it was very funny. I really enjoyed it. Um, But to your point, none of this episode made any goddamn sense. It was just ridiculous. Um, Like the speed force was the love we made along the way. Like, I I agree with you. I love the idea that Iris was the key to all of this because Barry and Iris is the key to everything on the flash. And that's, that is as it should be. And I really like that as a concept. And the idea that she, like you said, that she has this residual speed force within her totally tracks for me i love it i think it makes perfect sense and i think it's the beautiful way of reaffirming them you get like a slight rearrangement and reprise of running towards you or whatever the name of their song running home is. to you yeah running home to you thank you um which this show should always trot out as much as possible because i'm a sucker for that song um even if it's not particularly good um but everything with reverting all the mirror mirror power stuff and it's like barry why are you holding everyone's hand for this you have no mirrorverse powers i don't understand what's happening right now um are you just doing it to be in solidarity okay cool buddy this is weird um it's just it doesn't make any sense i'm sad that harrison wells is time traveling and is just going to keep bopping back for four years because that is weird and sad and i want to talk about that with you harrison yeah he's gonna get over that i think pretty quick yeah i really feel like we need to have harrison needs to have a little bit of he needs to have a joe talk about moving forward um because you can do that a couple of times but then you need to kind of realize that you're living in grief and 
look what happens when you live in grief. You take an entire town hostage without any consequences. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. But I'm I'm looking forward to the rest of the season also not making any sense. I don't quite know what's up with the multicolored lightning. I think it's probably presaging the other um, non-Speed Force forces that exist. By the way, there are other non-Speed Force forces that exist, everyone. Look forward to that nonsense. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. I feel like they've talked about who the villain is for next season, but I can't remember. Um, and I don't want to know, so please don't tell me, listeners, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you do know. Um, yeah, and I can't remember. Um, and maybe they ha- I think that they have, but I just, I don't yeah. remember. But I'm, I'm ready, f- as much as I enjoyed... Um, all the mirror stuff because again I love Mirror Master and I love the Mirrorverse stuff I'm ready to move on because it got away from them and I think the pandemic is to blame for that to a certain degree because I don't feel like this is the finale they intended maybe in terms of scope but they probably intended for the second thing yeah, <laughs> which yeah, doesn't definitely. make me feel any better about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I mean a lot of the stuff would have landed in a different way back yes. you know at the end of last season but um mm-hmm. yeah let's move right along to a finale that i think is much more successful and that is the ducktales finale you know we go from the power of love to the power of family both found and uh you know biological as well Cloned and all sorts of everything else um what did you think of our three-part ducktales finale and like our gargoyles crossover oh okay yeah no we're gonna t- we're gonna start with the gargoyle reference crossover type deal because Kate for the longest time and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast I've talked about it with my partner and I've talked about it with some other folks of like there is no reasonable way for DuckTales to do gargoyles like it doesn't make any sense they can't do it in part because there are humans on the gargoyle show so there's no real way to justify doing this um and then they're just like but what if her living statue is voiced by Keith David and is also the headless horseman of the apocalypse? And then we just do the gargoyles theme and Keith David says the I live again line. <laughs> and then he says it again just to like really go for it. And Kate, just make me a late, a, ver- a very old millennial, very, very happy. <laughs> um so that little sequence just made me very happy and i really enjoyed it i thought it was very silly it doesn't work it doesn't make any sense but i don't care because it's really funny and i love that keith david was game for it but keith david loves goliath to death and as well he should goliath is a beautiful character um and so yeah no i thought it was great um it was pretty close to my favorite part of this finale because i do like this finale but also it is just so much finale it is so it's a lot of show in three episodes that i don't think totally works but it's so fun that i don't also don't totally care i think that's kind of where i came down particularly with this last season of ducktales that i think has been despite being a full season has also been really scattered in its focus um this finale was also appropriately scattered a little bit in its focus and a little disjointed but the big set pieces worked really well everything with um um the buzzard whose name i can't remember uh bradford 
Radford, thank you. Everything with Radford, I think, actually ends up working really, 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 really well. Um, down to even Heron's whole, like, pleased that she's getting tossed into a black hole that will erase her existence because she finally turned Radford into a villain, basically. Um, just all that stuff with Radford as an arc, I think, really, really worked. And his ultimate goal of just stopping adventuring and chaos, I think, was a really great counterpoint to both ducktales but also the disney afternoon in general mm-hmm. um so i think that all really made sense but just the ways in which we got there just sometimes the parts weren't all the way up to the hole i think um so like our side pat side patches with the dark wing characters fighting steel beak just kind of never went anywhere with me um and then the kids felt too sidelined for like large stretches which i did not care for um, but I think all the webby stuff is really, really good. So, um, how did you feel about this before I just keep talking too much? I liked it a lot. I, I, I agree. It's very stuffed. Um, I think saving the webby information for the finale works. I don't yes. like, I never like when they have to make someone a secret child of somebody else. Um, yes. I don't think sure. it works here either. Uh, narratively, I think that it. Uh, it works from a plot mechanics point of view in a yes. way that's really neat. But I don't think that um, Scrooge is not dad now. That's not yes. how it works. <laughs> and so I like that is weird to me um, that they try to have him acting more dad-like with the thing. Like he is a beloved family member because they are yes. a family. He is not all of a sudden your dad. And now he's like, that's not, they weren't going to get into all of that. They didn't have enough time to get into all that. Um, but I liked that they did make a point to emphasize, like, gr- like Granny's fears about what that would mean, what the revelation would mean um, to Webby. And her- and Webby immediately quashing that with that big hug, right? It was lovely. Um, I don't know why we needed to have two more clones. I don't think we needed a Huey, Louie, and Dewey for April, May, and June. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it, it was fun for an episode or whatever, but yes. like, don't think we needed it. Um, and the, I mean, I think it, as a way to just kind of have a last hurrah and bring a bunch of people back and yes. raise the stakes and everything. I think it all worked really well. It was delightful. I agree. This last season has been very disjointed and not up to the caliber of some of the other seasons, like standalone episodes here and there. Absolutely. But like, this is previously a show that has done its arcing really well, really like with really impactful, uh, uh, character growth and exploration, it, like in the margins and then, paying off in powerful ways by the finale. And they could have done that here and they didn't. They started to tease at some of the stuff with Granny and, and Webby, but it didn't get the focus that I think it needed to make a cohesive through line. Um, that could have been because they didn't expect to get canceled. <laughs> um, who knows? Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I still really did enjoy these and um, the Gargoyles riff was fun. And uh, it was, I mean, it's been a delightful run for this for this whole series. So I, yeah. I think they, they have overall really stuck the landing and it's, a, it's a really lovely new take on DuckTales and whatever comes next, you know, for these characters in the next 20 years or whatever, if it gets rebooted again, I hope that they do as good a job as they did with this one. Um, I would not have anticipated necessarily them being able to recapture as much of the energy and fun of DuckTales 
like before this premiered, I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated it would be as good as it, as it ended up being. Um, so I, it's been a lovely ride, I think, for these three seasons. Yeah, and I think that's accurate. And I don't have anything to add to that except for you've missed one really important thing that this show gave us, which is, Larry, I'm on DuckTales. <laughs> oh, very nice. Oh, man. Yeah, there's there, there's a lot of really great little moments throughout this, so delightful. Um, okay, well, what, when you, what wins your week in TV? Despite the fact that, like, I was just kind of down on it in terms of how overstuffed it was, I'm not going to begrudge the fact that it was overstuffed. So it's the DuckTales finale for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also Lover's Rock, but it is the DuckTales finale. Uh, what about you? Yeah, ditto. Ditto that. <laughs> I'm yeah. right there with you. Um, speaking of, let's take a break. Listen to the trailer for Lover's Rock, which is going to be incomprehensible. I think without <laughs> the text on screen, um, and is mostly just some music. But that's a good, actually, a good hint at what the what the movie is for those who don't know. You can just uh, play so we'll, Kung Fu Fighting; it'll be fine. So we're gonna listen to the trailer for Lovers Rock and be right back with our DVD, DVD shelf talking about uh, the Small Axe episode two. I've been That was the trailer for Lover's Rock, which is the second installment in the anthology series, Small Axe. Um, this one, we, we previously talked about uh, the first episode, which followed the trial, like a trial it was a very procedural, like straightforward narrative, like two hour long thing. This is 68 minutes of vibing at a party basically <laughs> and a day or an evening in the life um set in i think it's 1980 in london with yeah a, it's the yeah it's the late 70s early 80s because kung fu fighting is out mm-hmm. um so yeah and yeah. silly games i think came out in like 79 70 79 78 so. mm-hmm. yeah um and so this is at a house party Wherein, um, because, because, you know, at the time, apparently, um, uh, the West Indian immigrants, in this case, there's a bunch of Jamaican immigrants or, or first generation Brit- British citizens, um, are not necessarily welcome at clubs. So instead, they, there would be, there people with their house parties and you'd pay cover to get in, have food, food, drink, and, and dance the night away, right? Um, Lover's Rock is actually a subgenre of music that I was not familiar with. It has a lot of kind of combines, um, well, based on a brief Googling, combines uh, Chicago and Philly soul with reggae beats and interpretation okay. and, and energy. So, um, and I may have that wrong. Listeners, let me know. Uh, but this really is just about, is about this party and it's about the people at the party and um, just their their night. And it's very much, like, there there is dialogue, there are narratives, but mostly it's a dance party and it's kind of hard to describe beyond that other than to say it is, you know, absolutely lovely with little, very realistic pinches of, um, I trauma is too strong. 
I would say not for one of the characters, well, depending but like on who you're talking about, depending on who you're talking about. Right. Um, but like of, of, uh, of not, let's say of not painting over some of the darker sides that goes with this experience, whether right. it's, you know, there's, there's a assault that is, you know, at least somewhat, um, is interrupted, shall we say. Um, there is the very present threat looming exterior threat of racist violence that um, is warded off. Um, and then there's also just some interpersonal, like, you ditched me for a guy. I guess I'm just going to leave the party now. <laughs> right. So, yeah. um, but, so it's not, it's, it's very warm. It's very experiential. It's very beautiful. Um, but I think if they hadn't had some of these other, threads in there it would have like it's one of those it's like you know the palette rebels kind of a thing it might have felt a bit too um tidy uh so i liked that that over the course of this evening you really get a sense of a whole you get you get a picture of a glimpse into a whole world um and i i, I really liked it i thought it was very beautifully done what, what, what did you think so i i'm someone who gets really anxious at parties um so I I I I I kind of had the same thought about the majority of this movie as I did that Steven Soderbergh had about watching Mad Max Fury Road which is I don't understand how they're not still shooting this movie and I don't <laughs> understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. <laughs> um, just because of like how I feel about parties and the fact of to your point of how McQueen as well as uh, his cinematographer for this um for this installment um Scheiber Kirchner shoot both of the two major set pieces of the movie um that can that somehow in and not not just somehow but also really specifically through their cinematography but also through their sound mixing um, you talk about how lush this is, and a lot of this reminded me a lot of like uh, Christopher Doyle and Wong Kar Wai's work and their um, early stages of the collaboration, which are very focused on fabrics and texture and tactile sensations. Um, Kar Wai is still really interested in those as a visual aesthetic, even though Doyle's moved on to working with other directors uh, more widely now. But it reminded me a lot of that kind of sensuality, which is why when we get swept up in both of these big music, singing, dancing numbers that you go to your, you think to yourself, or at least I did anyway, that this feels spontaneous. This feels organic. It doesn't feel like something that was scripted and staged and worked and choreographed and all this other stuff because of how they've shot it and how they've led up to it. So everyone's starting to sing silly games <laughs> um, after the song is done is just beautiful and gut-wrenching and just bonkers good. And then the other musical <laughs> dance number, which is a heavy counterpoint to all of that, is this weird, aggressive power celebration as well to the quieter celebration of silly games. And I just really love both of those as a counterpoint, but also just how both of those numbers just kind of 
pack wallops of me as someone with anxiety at parties going, no, absolutely not. No, I can't <laughs> handle any of that. Um, also, remember going to parties, everyone? I don't. I don't. Uh, I never have been a parties person. Uh, yeah. A, a, a low-key get-together with a few friends <laughs> is me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I think that those two set pieces are like the big reasons to watch Lovers Rock because I think they're just bonkers, ridiculous, good things to watch um, in and of themselves. Um, but you can appreciate them without the entire movie at the same time. And also, I would argue that you can't fully appreciate Lovers Rock without having seen Mangrove. Um, because I do think that the two exist in kind of a counterpoint to one another, but also serve as a sort of reprise of both of their themes about how do we find a sense of community? What happens when that community is threatened? How can we fight back against that? And Mangrove has that very procedural courtroom drama aspect to it to do that. Whereas Lovers Rock is, we're just going to ignore it for this one night because that's the night that we get. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that it's really great watching both of these in conjunction with one another and thinking about them as two halves of something um even if tonally they could not be more distinct yeah yeah definitely well because like mangrove is is so plotted and so yes scripted right and obviously this is very scripted as well it's just a very different kind of thing like you were saying um and it's very i mean i'm glad i'm glad you mentioned the texture right it's very tactile um mm-hmm. and it and they do such a good job of establishing the space uh, yes. from the very beginning of the the movie or the episode right when when you're they're moving all the couch out of the way and everything so that they can set up for the party and and like you get those the the women in the kitchen who are singing silly game right which then is going to come back later um setting up Martha and, and Patty, like throwing their stuff out the window, sneaking out of the house to, to, to meet you up at the bus sh- stop. shoes down the, out the window. Did you want me to carry them in my teeth? It's just <laughs> so good. It's very good. It's very good. Um, yeah. And just this different, you know, all these different characters that you're getting this amount of time with, um, and where they're at and where they're coming from, what they're experiencing. Uh, yeah, it, it it's it feels it's part movie and it's part music video and it is exactly like the best of both of those right like mm-hmm. that we've talked about like you know how how emotional and how lush and how you know, like so, like like the sense sensual that is it's also and hot man that yes. that central one of the central uh dance uh like one of the songs um mm-hmm. and then but but i love that this is like they it's clearly a priority it's clearly a priority for mcqueen and for uh just everybody like the writers right um which is uh steve mcqueen and Corsha newland is the other screenplay credit here um to show different kinds of people at this party, right? You see mm-hmm. all these couples dancing together, but you also see several people just dancing on their own and just completely feeling their body and like being in the music and not not needing a partner, not wanting a partner, just wanting to be with themselves in this communal space. There's different ages, there is very different presentations of gender, uh 
like it's not everybody all dolled up. There's the, cause you get, there's the doorman and who comes in later towards the end of the party with someone else who is not dressed up at all has for, you know, has a very different presentation. Um, and like not dressed up for a party, but clearly they're having a great time. You know, like I, I really appreciated that. Uh, like when you hear the voices singing, there's one voice that is distinctly older than the average and, and they're having just as good a time at the party with everyone else. Um, it, and it's just this really lovely and interesting and um, lived in kind of snapshot of that kind of a scene of that kind. Yes. I mean, I don't know. I can't, I don't know how accurate it is. It seems like it's very, it feels very authentic. It feels very accurate to what that kind of party would be like. And it makes you go like, Oh, that's how people like that kind of thing. Like, no, <laughs> that's too many people in too small space for me. But yes, I can, absolutely. I get, I get the allure. I get why people are on board and that what that all has to offer, especially to this group of, of uh, like this marginalized community and this group of people, um, who you can see just from the few glimpses we get of them operating in the outside world, do not have this, uh, this freedom and this um, ability to just be. Yeah, their the authentic, life. their authenticness. Because I, even by the end, we see, we hear, and to a certain degree, see um, Michael Ward's performance as Franklin, um, Franklin Coates, which is at the end when he's talking to his boss in the garage, and so you see that kind of degree of authenticness um, that gets explored to a certain degree. Uh, just within that, and within the again within the confines of the party. You can be who you want to be or be who you are. Um, because, yeah, Bammy's terrible and I don't want to be around Bammy and Bammy should not be invited to any more parties. Um, but I also think that Bammy's whole presence at the party does create like the... It's a weird thing to go, why is this here for me? Um, because I... I our lives are messy even when we go to a party where we don't know anyone. Um, and the ways in which that continues to happen here, I feel like is a weird misstep in the movie, but I'm not mad at it either is the thing. Like, I want to be upset or I want to, like, really knock the movie for it, but I can't because it does feel legitimate. It does have an air of, well, yeah, no, there's always someone at a party who's just terrible. Um and it happens to be Bammy here. Um, and even with other intrusions, like, and I don't want to say intrusions, but like Clifton coming into the party um, and causing a degree of a scene in the um, atrium or the foyer or the landing. And then, um, but also having that moment where you're talking about like being in touch with the body and like finding some degree of release from grief that then serves as a counterpoint to what's going on with Cynthia to a certain degree, what's Bammy has dredged up in Martha and what Clifton has dredged up in Martha with uh, the abuse that she's dealt with. And those flashback voices basically that kind of come into play right before she um, is able to get Cynthia away from Bammy um, behind the, sh behind the fence, I guess. Um, that it all feels like little things coming in from the outside 
Um, but that this one particular moment is something the dance and the party in of itself is this one particular moment that there is still a refuge from those moments, even when they intrude here. And I think that there's something really honest about that, even if I don't think that the story in and of itself can support that weight entirely, just because of the fact that this is a very heavy mood and vibe piece. Yeah. Well, see, but I prefer that they don't pretend that this stuff isn't part of the experience of the people there too, you know? Yeah, like, sure, sure, sure. You're sure. not trying to pretend, well, at this house party, nobody is trying to get a woman away from the the action so that they can take advantage of them or, or this they can assault them. Like, everybody is great here. It's like, no, they don't pretend that. Um, and I like the, the distinction the people at the party have between how they engage with different threats and how they like the birth that people are giving Clifton right when he's dancing and uh, then how they like, you can see them reacting to you and like kind of trying to steer him into, into a, like basically control the situation and let him do what he needs to do to get some of this grief out in a way that is constructive for the party and everyone there rather than just shunning him or, or right. you know, like, or, or banishing him. Um, mm-hmm. And versus the stuff with Bammy, right. Which is very different. Um, and yeah, I think, I think there's a, there's an interesting, there's layers of what's going on and that is all happening through performance. And I'm sure it's in the script with like the direction and the, the, the timing and the, how everything is laid out, but it's, it's very much, you know, as a viewer, it's, you're picking all that up from body language cues and and everything. Um, It's really, they don't, they're, they're not going to hold your hand with it, which I also very much appreciate. It's also, you know, through the, like the vibe of the party, definitely shifts by the end you can see why why they left right why why uh um martha and franklin head out um though it it was a little too light (laughs) that must have been a filming thing um yeah it was but what are you gonna do yeah i was like that is not like what church are you going to which mass are you going to that it's already that bright before you know you know you're getting the knock on the door but uh they also just tell us so much about Martha and her home life just in the few kind of glimpses that you get. And the fact that she's apparently ready to get right back out of bed and go to church all day <laughs> um, and be able to do that without just like, I would, I would be dead. <laughs> I would just fall asleep in the pew. Um, so yeah. Uh, do you have any other uh, performances or moments that stood out to you or, uh, you know, thoughts on, on this. I mean, I'm very, I can see Mangrove and then this, which I think Mangrove is one of the longer ones. And this is, I think the shortest yes. installment. I believe it is the shortest installment. Yes. I'm very curious to see the next three, you know, and how they all mm-hmm. kind of fit together and complement and interact with each other. Um, and, and Franklin, you better be at that payphone at five o'clock. Yes. He, he needs to be at the payphone. That is, that is what I, that, that is very important. Um, and yeah, no, I don't really have any other final thoughts. I think that this is really good. And like Mangrove, it's worth watching. Um, it's easy to not pay attention to it at the beginning, mm-hmm. but it very slowly draws you in, I think. Um, so much so that 
like I wasn't paying super close attention for like the first little bit of it. And then I kind of drifted in and then I drifted out and then the silly games set piece kicks in and I'm just like, Oh, Oh, this is the, this is it. This is the thing. This is the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then going, and then I was pretty much in for the rest of it. Cause I think, uh, silly games comes in around like the halfway point. Um, and then I was just in for the rest of the movie. Um, so no, it's really good. Um, the, the third one, red, white, and blue is a more feature length. Uh, it's John Boyega. It's based on a true story again, or inspired by real events. It's definitely based on a real person. Um, so eventually we'll get to it. Um, but, uh, yeah. Do you have anything else? Yeah. Just, I, I, you know, I wish, I think I, if I had known more of what it was mm-hmm. not not even like the story or anything but just like tonally mm-hmm. going in i could have approached it more in its own terms okay um at the beginning right as opposed to like being like okay so what's the narrative you know like you know, especially when we're, we're watching something for the podcast i know we're going to talk about it being like okay i gotta keep track of the, who the characters are this like, and and just like no this is just experiential just let it wash over you and immerse yourself in the in the feel of it and in the music and in the the energy, like that's what this is about. Like put down the notepad right? and just let the emotions kind of, you know, like let experience the day. Right. It's like a almost dialogue, comparatively dialogue free before sunrise, before sunset. Right. But in 60 minutes. Um, And yeah, if if it's about people feeling and experiencing rather than talking. And, um, so I, so like, like you, when I was first starting, I was like, wait, I was like, what am I missing? I'm waiting for something to kind of kick in, um, before I realized I was watching it wrong. And it's not that the movie was wrong. I was wrong and how I was approaching it. So yeah, with that, like, I would advise people go in knowing that. And even, even if you don't, I think it's a really beautiful, really well-made piece of, you know narrative storytelling whether you want to call it tv or a movie um and uh and, and really lovely and uh yeah i'm glad that we decided to talk about it because i again like i said last time i was i did not seek out small acts in 2020 uh, i did not make time for these these installments and i'm glad that we are taking some of the time to talk about it this week um because yeah it's another really really lovely i'm gonna say tv movie there you steve go. mcqueen we're <laughs> Um, a few show notes here at the end of the episode. You can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can like, like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. You can email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can uh, find us in uh, Apple Podcasts with an M4A chaptered feed and MP3 unchaptered feed. We're also up in Stitcher. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews either place. And of course, we're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you for so much for a great discussion. And I look forward to next week where we just discuss the Snyder cut for the entire runtime. <laughs> Clearly, right? That's what we're going to do, listeners. That's what we're going to do. You you demanded We're not it. doing that. You you donated through the Patreon enough that just <laughs> episode 499 is just going to be the Snyder cut. That's all we're going to talk about. I've never actually seen the first Justice League, so this will this will be my first time watching any of it. Um, I know that Kate is a big, big fan of the original Whedon cut. Um, <laughs> but so she's going to have strong thoughts about it. So look forward to that next week, everyone. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. I, I'm actually pretty excited for this show we're doing next week because people will have either no intention of watching it and have not seen it or have 
will have wanted us to watch it for like years now. I, th- I could say so. Like I'm excited for it. We I still tattoos. need to start it, and I'm like, uh... I, yeah, me too. <laughs> we gave ourselves so much time because we're like, there are subtitles. We did, and then we didn't take any advantage, <laughs> and because. We watch too much Designing Women and too much Rockford and too much Muppet shows and didn't spend any... And I do not regret those choices. Nope, I don't regret them either. Just now we've got to power through however many episodes of subtitles. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There before next week. Well, and with that tease out of the way, uh, thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Thank you.